welcome to episode 21 of the Podium Runner Endurance Podcast. On the show, I talk to athletes, coaches, and sports scientists about their experiences and advice. Thanks for listening, and I'm your host, Ian Sharman, head coach at Sharman Ultra Coaching and a professional ultra runner. This is the last show, uh, and the format is a Q&A with myself about any training and racing topics I've been emailed about in advance. So the topics today uh, that we covered include altitude training gimmicks, uh, how to incorporate strength training around running, peaking for a big race that's difficult to get into, like Western States, how to benefit from weight vests, are power meters useful, uh, winter motivation, keto LCHF diets for ultra runners. So that's a more controversial one there, but uh, don't worry, I, I don't think I'm going to say anything too uh, unusual there, plus several other things as well. So let's get into it. As I mentioned, today's format is a Q&A, so I'll read out the question and the person it's from, then I'll, uh, I'll give my answer. So question number one, uh, during the podcast with Magda Boulay about altitude training, she mentioned that she didn't use an altitude chamber when preparing for Leadville. Do you think one could benefit from using things like altitude training masks as a mechanism for training to race at altitude? And that's from Yasin via Twitter. So the very simple answer here is, thinking about how it's actually going to help you for what you need to do. So specificity being the key thing. So uh, certainly being at altitude, that is clearly specific. It's exactly what your body will go through when you are at altitude. So the number one thing is always going to be if you can have some time at altitude and without going into too much detail, we already talked about that in that podcast. Um, the simple idea being if you can have seven days or more at altitude and ideally up to about three to four weeks wouldn't be make the biggest difference. So if you're racing at altitude, it's a different scenario to training at altitude for sea level running, which is typically what you'd see um, Olympian marathoners particularly doing. But in this case, the, the question is more about what other things could you do if you can't be at altitude or what could you do to, to supplement that? So um, really not many things are going to be that helpful, to be honest. Uh, probably the next most helpful thing would be heat training. There's been shown to be overlaps between the type of adaptations you get that it actually seems to help with them being able to exercise at altitude. But in terms of using uh, things like a, a, an altitude mask where you're, you're basically changing the concentration of things that you're breathing in, or in some cases, they're just basically restricting your breathing, that's really just going to lower the intensity of what you're able to do. So it just lowers the quality of your training. So um, I'm not aware of any research there that actually shows that that's helpful. If anything, that would just mean that you'd not get, gain as much fitness, but it's not doing anything specific. It's not doing anything long enough for what you'd actually do within a race or within running at altitude. Um, because you need a large portion of hours per day of training like that. And as I mentioned, seven days of altitude uh, time is really what's needed to, to show more of a benefit than just being up there immediately. It gets worse at first as you just feel exhausted from it. And then it's by about the seven day point that you start to feel a little bit better. And that's why around three weeks is ideal. But if you were to use something like a, a mask, even if it did work, if you use it for an hour long run, it's not providing enough of a stimulus for altitude anyway. Like if you were at altitude for one hour and then came back down, that's not providing enough of a stimulus either. So simple answer there, I would say, is that it's not really worth doing things like that, especially because they're, um, they're usually going to be expensive and they may actually lower your quality of training. Um, a more similar thing would be something like an altitude chamber, uh, which is more specific, but it would still have that issue of not really being long enough. So if you can sleep in an altitude chamber or potentially an altitude tent that isn't going to have the same... Um, pressure differential that you can get in a airtight chamber, then that could, uh, could benefit. But if you're not doing it for enough hours per day, it's probably not going to do much. So again, if you were to just go into an altitude chamber for an hour long session, 
the type of adaptation you're going to get from that is really not going to be significant. I would say it's probably cheaper and simpler to just put on some extra layers, run outside in the heat, and that's probably going to provide a, a bigger benefit overall and be simpler to do. Um, one of the key principles here, and we talked about this on the uh, the podcast about recovery, one of the first podcasts, is what is the cost and what is the benefit of what you're doing? So in this case, the cost is both the inconvenience and the actual monetary cost of uh, buying these extra tools. And the benefit in the best case scenario is very, very minimal. So the cost benefit ratio is not great there. Uh, while just getting yourself hotter on runs or running in the summer um, is hardly any costs, but uh, potentially more of a benefit. So always be thinking about things in those terms. But uh, the simple answer I would say is altitude masks. I never recommend them. Um, there's nothing to show that they're actually of any use. They're more just a kind of thing that look hardcore and, and look nice in a, an Instagram post, but don't really do anything. So the next question, I run six days per week, two harder sessions, three easy and a long run. I want to incorporate more strength work in my routine, but I don't know when to add it during the week. My legs are tired on the easy days from the sessions and want to keep them fresh ahead of a, session, of a harder session. So I just use them to recover. When should I do strength training? And that's from John A. So over time, actually, I would say my, my thoughts on this have evolved. Uh, and I think it, uh, as with most things, it depends. But the simple answer being you want to ease into strength training for a runner. Usually about two sessions a week would be good. It doesn't need to be a huge amount of time. And again, we want to think about specificity. So the most specific thing for your running is running. If you were to lose some running time, you're on low mileage, you're probably better off mainly sticking to running. But it also depends on your injury history, depends on what type of things you're training for. If you're training for mountain races and you live somewhere flat, then strength training would have a bigger place. But I, I would, I always used to say that it's best to do the strength training on a day when you already have a harder day. So get the run out the way first, like a speed session in the morning and then strength work later in the day. I don't think that's essential now. I've seen enough cases where it doesn't seem to make that much difference, but I would say to try and avoid having a rest or recovery day then be about strength training, particularly if it's strength training of the legs, because then you're not really getting a chance to recover. So you get the stimulus from the run the day before, and then rather than adapting to it, you're then breaking yourself down again with that strength work. So you could probably get away with that occasionally, but it probably wouldn't be the best principle to stick to there. But in general, I think strength training could fit in most days. It partly depends on how hard it feels for you, how much of it you're doing, um, whether it's corrective exercises because you have an injury. And so maybe a PT has given you uh, a larger amount to be doing for that to help correct things. And that becomes a higher priority over the runs and the runs are, are just secondary to that. So it doesn't matter if you're a little bit tired for the runs in that case. But um, the general rule I'd say here is you could do it probably most days, but try to just allow for how your body's responding to it. Are you feeling tired on a run? Are you unable to do runs properly? As long as you can do that, whatever pattern you're having from for the strength work is probably okay. But I would say if you're doing strength work the same day as a harder effort uh, or a longer run, do it afterwards. Uh, and if that means that you can't do the strength training well that day, probably best to, to switch it to a different day and learn from that. But the main thing is you don't want it to then get in the way of the quality that you could do with your, uh, with your running, because that still is the priority. Next question. Um, my question is about protein BCAA, so branch chain amino acids, for long training runs and racing. I've not found much research related to ultras. How should athletes implement this? And what are some client successes and anecdotes? What are some DIY solutions? That's from Dean J. So in terms of being able to take on food during long runs, I think universally everyone would, would agree that is necessary if you're, if you're out there for longer because you need the calories to keep moving. 
in terms of having protein and things that are helping to you re- to helping you to rebuild that's a little bit different because you rebuild afterwards if you're doing a um, let's say a 200 mile race so you're going to be out there for several days you need to be eating a lot and um, you're trying to make sure that you don't break down too much it's kind of inevitable you're not really going to be able to avoid that by taking on things to help you recover during it. Uh, I mean, maybe to some degree, I suppose, while if you're having sleep during that, so it's a very long race, maybe in a hundred mile where you don't sleep, uh, this this would be an even more precise answer. But the idea being that you're not going to rebuild while you're also damaging the muscles. So you really just need the calories to get you through, and that's going to be mainly carb-based. Uh, in terms of taking protein BCAAs afterwards to help you recover, um, you certainly need to make sure you get enough nutrients. In terms of how much I wouldn't worry too much about that as long as you're having a, a balanced diet at that point. I don't think you necessarily need to take any kind of uh, additional uh, pills for that, for example. It would be better to get it through natural food rather than something that's less natural. And also a lot of, of uh, these additional things you could take are not checked by uh, by government agencies. They don't necessarily have what they say they have on the, the packet. Um, so the, the simple answer again to this would be taking that kind of thing during a race probably not going to make a difference. Taking it afterwards, maybe a little bit, but you could get that through food anyway. So you just want to make sure you're getting the right nutrients, certainly including protein so that you can rebuild afterwards. But during a race, during a long event, um, I've not seen any anecdotes or any uh, any re- research to suggest that that would really make a significant difference. Some drinks and foods include some degree of protein in them um, that are designed for for running, but they're probably not going to allow you to rebuild during that. The thing that'll make more of a difference is having a higher level of fitness and specifically for what you're going to be doing in advance. So if you can have more strength in the legs from strength training, from mountain running, from doing all the things that'll really help you in the race, that's going to make much more of a difference because then you're going to break down less. Also, pacing is going to be a big part of that. If you go out too hard or do the the first few downhills too hard, you're going to break down the muscles quicker as well. So there's not much you can do to fix that during the race. You're just trying to reduce the deterioration and start from as high a point as possible. But taking um, things to help you recover in the middle of it probably isn't going to make any difference realistically. Maybe a little bit in a 200 miler while you sleep, because that's when your body can rebuild a little bit. But if it's nonstop exercise, uh, it's not going to make much difference there. And even if you're doing, say, a marathon, and you're going to be out there for three or four hours, then taking the, the proteins during is not going to reduce how sore you are in the final mile. But you can eat just as easily right afterwards. So I'd say much better to, to focus on the things that are helping you uh, in the moment there, which would be the carbohydrate that you're needing as fuel. Next question then. Uh, a number of regular runners finally got into their big race uh, big race this year, like Western States 100. It's taken them years and maybe they're not in their prime. For mid-packers, what should the next six months look like to prepare for Western States? What should be their big focus so they can avoid a DNF? And that's also from Dean Jay, same person as the last question. So yes, this is a, certainly a key thing uh, in ultra running where a lot of the biggest races are lotteries. You also get that in major road races, you know, getting into Boston, getting into the London Marathon, New York Marathon, ones that are not that simple to get into and you might have to take a while or in the case of Boston, maybe build up to it to get enough of a, uh, a fitness to get the time that you need to qualify. So I would say you definitely want to make it your priority. If it's something this big, and especially if you've taken maybe a decade to get into that race, you don't want to then just uh, deprioritize it. And I see this all too often where people spend years trying to get into something like Western States. Then when they do, they're still trying to do too many races in the buildup. 
uh, and they're not giving enough respect to the main race that is frankly all that they care about for that year. I mean, I always, one of the ways I explain it to them is at the end of the year, if you had the other races not go well, but Western States or whatever the A race is goes really well, is that a good year to you? Is that all that really matters? In which case we want to focus all that buildup, um, particularly the three months before, but really the six months, because you've got to factor in the other buildup races on making sure that you can peak for the one that matters. So not being injured. So probably not over racing being an important thing. Um, not being exhausted, again, not over racing, not over training as well, making sure that the final months you can, and particularly the last couple of months, you can be more specific. So for Western States, that means doing your heat training in the final month and not overdoing things in other ways. But for six months out from something like Western States, you really just want to start getting good consistency. So Western States is at the end of June. So it, you, basically six months out is the beginning of the year. You want to just start building a base and maybe thinking about it as a six-month buildup, while for other races in the past, it might be a one-month or a two-month buildup, or it's always one race, and then the next month's the next race, and there's never as much of a peak. So the biggest thing I'd say is treat it like it is a focus. Treat it as like something you want to peak for uh, if it is genuinely that important to you. And then you can backfill from that of what kind of races would help you with that. If you're doing a 100-miler, I would say for most people, it's going to help to probably have a 50-miler in the buildup, certainly at least 150K. This will partly depend on how much experience you have. If you've never done a 100-miler before, maybe you'd want to stretch that to 100K in the buildup, but make sure you've got at least a couple of months before so that you have time to recover from that and learn from it and adjust training. But it's really going to depend on your level of experience. But in this question, we're talking about someone who's probably done a lot of other races because they've taken so long to get to the one they really care about. And in that situation, I would say, don't feel like you have to have loads of massive races in the buildup. What you need is consistency and then specific training as you get closer to it, not being exhausted on race day, not being overtrained and not being injured in particular. And then also that's going to make you feel mentally better prepared for it in terms of, you know, you haven't um, expended a lot of that effort uh, and those hard grinding days in other races. And also I'd say part of that is for those build-up races, think of them as build-up races, as B races, not as ones that you're necessarily peaking for. The other thing I'd say is specifically if it's a hundred miler, like a Hard Rock or Western States, a UTMB, is there is use in, in having uh, a lot of marathon pace still. So I personally like to include for myself and for my runners, a marathon, a road marathon in the buildup, particularly something like Western States that is more runnable. But um, the benefit there is that your 100 mile fitness and ability to perform there is going to come down to more than just how fit you are on race day, but it's going to come down to um, the higher your your top end is in terms of fitness, and that's going to be correlated with your marathon fitness in particular, the better you're likely to be able to do, as long as you get all the specifics and get the execution right. But if we assume that we're prioritizing it enough that uh, that we can get the execution as well as possible, if we're just talking about physical fitness in the buildup, I would say having some priority on getting your marathon fitness uh, lined up and potentially even running a road marathon two to three months out would be very useful as well. It's, it's just a, an excellent way to uh, to work on the right elements of speed and endurance mixed together. It's a great practice at pacing. It's hopefully a good um, confidence buildup as well if you can see that you're running well and you've got some speed. And then that will flow over to being able to go at those slower paces and it feeling that much easier for those as well. So high level there, I'd say 
make sure for at least the three months before the race, that big race is your, is your main focus, that you backfill things based on the experience you have and what's worked for you in the past, that you don't overdo things and that other races are more like B races and potentially to think about having something like a marathon in the buildup on roads or runnable trails would work as well, but a road one's even more even and it's all about even pacing and, and trying to just get into exactly the right rhythm. Um, that would be very useful in that buildup, something like two months before as well. Next question. Um, I understand you're a big fan of weight vests. How do you recommend incorporating a weight vest into training? And that's by Jonathan G. <clears throat> so I wrote an article about this for uh, Ultra Running Magazine about a year ago to, uh, to just explain the kind of concept here of, of using weight vests. And really, it's much more about active recovery. I think there's maybe a little bit of a benefit for someone who is training for mountain races to get a little bit more leg strength because adding some degree of a weight vest in is causing a little bit more work for the leg muscles, but really it's much more about active recovery. So the way I think it benefits most is by able, being able to increase your volume in a very safe way and helping you to recover from the harder stuff you're doing. So if you're a 50 mile a week runner and you want to add more mileage, more running mileage is going to be a bit more risk than more walking mileage or more light cycling or more um, using a weight vest. So I don't talk about using a heavy weight vest. I think typically a 20 pound weight vest for a man, maybe a little bit less for a woman would be uh, fairly typical. And, and we're not talking about trying to do really heavy, like army style, 50 pound uh, backpack situations, unless you're doing a race that involves having that, in which case, yes, that that's a different category here. But what I'm talking about is more about active recovery, being able to safely increase your volume, which all other things being equal should help you and uh, should make you a, a better runner and hopefully also help you to recover a little bit better as well. So some of the key things there are um, checking how you feel and, to, and so that if you go out with a weight vest, going a bit slower, if you need a bit more um, recovery, if you feel a bit more tired, um, not making it too hilly. Um, but if things feel good and once you get used to the weight vest after using it for a week or two, you could do it almost any day of the week. Just needs to be a couple of miles. You're just getting out there for maybe 15 minutes minimum as a way to boost that volume. I personally like 30 minutes as a good amount of time because that's been shown in numerous studies around there to be the, the minimum amount that provides a training benefit. Plus, it's just nice to get out and do a walk. It gives you a break from things, gives you a chance to uh, digest the day mentally. So there's potentially some mental benefits there as well. But it's much more about active recovery. So we're not trying to make it super heavy. We're certainly not trying to make it super steep. You don't need to be doing it on a, a treadmill at the steepest gradient. It's more about just give, allowing yourself to get in more training in a way that's sustainable. So that would be the, the simplest concepts. And like I said, about 20 pounds is enough. You don't need a really heavy one. You don't need a really expensive weight vest that you could use for running because I'm only talking about hiking here as well. So if you're going to run with a weight vest, because maybe you've got a race where you've got to run with a lot more weight, like a really big backpack, then you'd want a, a higher quality weight vest because they bounce around and, and you want it to fit very well. But if you're just walking with it, it can be a very cheap one. I actually like the idea as well of leaving it unzipped or unfastened um, at the front so it swings a little bit because then that's giving you a little bit more core strengthening as well, but in a very light and gentle way that is very sustainable. But if it swings a little bit with each movement, that's forcing your core to engage to stop you twisting. So there's just that extra little be benefit of very hyper-specific to running core training. So yeah, hopefully that gives a, a good idea about what that's all about. Uh, next question. What do you recommend as the core concepts for getting the most out of training in general? And that's from Dave P. So this is a very high level um, question. 
I would say that probably a good starting point would be a podcast I recently did for Trail Runner Nation that came out just a couple of weeks before this, so January uh, 2022. Um, and that was about um, get, getting quality in your training. Uh, and the topic in particular that I talked about was every run and every session that you do, having a purpose and knowing why you're doing it. So I won't go into too much depth there because I think I'll just direct you to that podcast. But the idea being that as long as you're thinking about why you're doing things, you're more likely to ha to get some benefit from it. If you're just going out the door, mindlessly getting in some miles, it doesn't mean that that's useless. It certainly isn't because it's helping with consistency, which is the number one thing that'll help, help you to improve. But having a, more of a purpose behind it, making sure there's quality in there, making sure your hard runs are harder, easy runs are easier. And then as you get close to races, that things get more specific. All of that is very essential. But I'll, I'll leave that as a, more of a discussion in the other podcast, as I mentioned, the Trail Run Nation one, uh, and I'll include that in the show notes as well, just so that uh, so that people know where that is. Next question. Um, I adapt readily to speed work, especially sprints, but over the four years I've been training more consistently, two five-month blocks and two rest periods per year, the only adaptation I seem to get from weekly long runs is less post-run soreness, and the distance never feels less of a struggle. I always lock up and lose range of motion at about 10 miles, and that will occur at every stage of the training cycle from week one to the start of the taper. I like 50Ks, and in events, I just push through. Nutrition-wise, I've worked out what to eat and when to maximize energy, so doubts are creeping in that I'm just not physiologically suited to endurance running. Do you have any suggestions for things I could try? That's from Eva W. Um, that's... Uh, quite a, a big question there, I would say. I think that the, the key thing that we're trying to get out of this is, are you adapting well to what you're doing? Is it too much or is it too little? In this case, it sounds like potentially it's a bit too much. If you're, if you're overdoing things, and I don't know the details about the rest of your training, then you're likely to get less adaptation to it. So if, for example, all of your runs are just a little bit too hard and you're not allowing yourself to recover well enough. I mean, we just talked about that with uh, weight vest uh, usage for active recovery, um, but that also applies to your easy days being easy enough. So it could be that the speed work you're seeing gains in, so that's a good sign. That's an indication that you're, you're doing well. But even still, if you're too tired at the long run from the speed work, then you're not going to be able to adapt to it as well. There's, there's no reason why you can't see gains. There's, there's, there's no way of knowing what your upper limits are, but certainly if you're having difficulties at 10 miles, there should be big gains for absolutely anyone where you can get beyond that point and things are feeling easier, you can go faster, you have less muscle soreness and everything else. But the first thing I'd say to, to just uh, try and work out there is, are you doing speed work too hard and or not recovering from it by the time you do the long run? So potentially the amount of days and the how easy those days are between the speed work and the long run. And then also maybe the long run is a little bit too hard. Maybe you're going out a bit too fast on that. And therefore, every time it's fading and, and feeling tougher. So just maybe thinking about it as time on feet rather than mileage, um, potentially throwing in some power hiking as well as running just to bump up the volume of those long runs, because there's basically a two, two hour threshold where you're getting more of an endurance benefit. That's where you're going to have burnt through a lot of the calories you have in terms of carbohydrates. Your body is forced to do more of the endurance related stuff it needs to do, uh, including uh, fat burning being a, a bigger part, part of what you your body is needing to use as fuel. And two hours is, is basically the threshold there. Uh, the, the slower you go, you can certainly go way more than two hours before you need to eat anything. But um, but typically speaking, if you're eating on your long runs and you're making sure that they feel easy enough, then you should be able to get a better adaptation. If you're going out, out a bit too fast, or you're too sore or tired in the first place, that might be the thing that's holding you back. But it certainly shouldn't be um, something that 
would be a, a deal breaker here. There's nothing to suggest that it's not possible to get better at this. How much better? That That's difficult to, to judge and you can never really judge that in advance. But I would say just maybe trying to make those long runs less pressured, not be worrying about what the pace is. Just think about being out there for a certain amount of time and being okay with doing some power hiking. And then you'll be able to just get more volume in there in a way that hopefully your body can adapt to and you start seeing some gains that way. Certainly make sure you are eating on those runs and, and just thinking about it being two hours plus. But if every time you're, you're struggling at 10 miles, probably means to make it a bit easier until you're starting to see the gains there or maybe even back off a little bit on the speed work when you're getting closer to a long race like a 50K so that you can have more priority on the thing that's more specific to the 50K, which is the longer runs. Uh, next question, is it practical and or sensible to train for both a road and a trail hilly ultra in the same season? That's from Alison M. Um, I would say it definitely is. In fact, I would encourage that a lot because it's nice to have the variety for the sake of doing different things. So it keeps you mentally stimulated. It makes things more enjoyable overall. It also gives you different things to build towards, which is a little bit more enjoyable than just doing the same thing again and again and again. I would recommend to anyone who's a road runner, <coughs> do some trail running. Anyone who's a trail runner, do some road running. Um, there may be certain elements of it that are maybe less enjoyable for you, but also ask yourself, why is that? Is it because you're less good at that? In which case, that's probably something that's worth focusing on at least a little bit in your training. Uh, it doesn't have to be doing a thing that you enjoy the least. It could be that you could get that in another way. Maybe there's one type of speed session you hate doing, but you could still think about what are the aims of that speed session and could you do them in a different way to still work on that weakness? But for most people, I recommend, particularly uh, to kind of go with the seasons, it's usually a bit easier to train for flatter stuff in winter because it's harder to get on trails, particularly if you live in a more northern place where there's snow and, and ice. Um, and so it's harder to get in loads of vert and be a trail runner in the middle of winter. So having at least a little bit more road running uh, makes sense then. So potentially training for an early season road race and then after that, use the speed and the fitness you gain from that. Uh, and the variation and, and excitement from that to then switch over to maybe more mountain running in the summer. So for a lot of the pros that I've worked with over the years, um, and really most people who, who live anywhere even remotely cold, uh, I would recommend having a bit more of a road focus and a speed focus through winter. And then it makes sense to have a payoff. It could even be just a half marathon. It doesn't have to be an ultra, but having something that gives you a bit of a payoff for that. And also ask yourself, if you really don't like those road, road races, what is it you don't like about them? Is it that you feel slow? In which case, maybe get a little bit quicker. You'll get some, a confidence boost and that'll be helpful as well for making your trail running better. But it's very, very feasible to do uh, road and trail races in the same season. I just want to, to make sure you allow enough time between them. Also bear in mind, it's going to be harder to switch back and forth multiple times. So I often get this situation where someone maybe wants to train for a road ultra like Comrades in South Africa. So that in the past at least was in June and then do a mountain ultra in the summer and then do a road ultra in, uh, in the autumn. And the difficulty with that is that you're going to gain fitness in one direction, but then you're going to have to totally change that direction in a short amount of time and change back. So having some overlap between races helps. So maybe four months, five months, you focus on the same type of thing. Like the whole summer period is about mountain running and trails. And then after that, as it gets colder, switch to maybe more a road focus. Uh, and that can also include road marathons. I've, I've mentioned multiple times, I'm certainly a big fan of that. And I throw a load of those in through my season, both to help get fitter and also to, uh, to just provide that variation. So 
the main things here I'd say are making sure you allow enough time between the different types of race, but they should have benefits that the road stuff makes you faster. The trail stuff makes you more robust and hopefully uh, there's less repetition, less chance of getting injured, and that flows over to the road running as well. So the two things I think are, uh, are very useful together to make you a better runner, to make you um, more excited about your running through each year. And particularly if you find you've been doing the same thing for many years, then switching to that other side of it uh, is very useful just as a, a general principle, but extremely practical, extremely sensible to try that. Just allow a little bit of time for that transition. So even if you get in awesome marathon shape or flat uh, road shape, just allow enough time to then get in the hilly training to get in the specifics before you have the next race. Unless to some degree, maybe you're using some races as a way to build up that fitness. And that's reasonable as well. Go with what you've experienced in the past, with how your body feels, with how you've adapted to things. And then based on that, you can um, work out what's likely to work for you and also what's exciting and fun for you. That's a big part of this. So one of the main reasons I would suggest this is because it should be more fun to keep more variation through the year. But also I think it'll make you a better runner uh, and the running, the road running helps your trails and trail running helps your roads as well. Next question from Jane S is, how can I stay motivated during the snowy winter months? So this is one that I'm dealing with a lot with the people I'm talking to because uh, I've got people as far north as Alaska and, and parts of Canada where they're just dealing with constant snow and uh, below zero Fahrenheit temperatures and, and really kind of crazy conditions that uh, uh, I, I have to admit I'm very impressed when people are able to, to have months of that and still keep themselves motivated. Um, the key things are working out what's going to be enjoyable for you as well as thinking further ahead so you can kind of backfill where you need to be. So. If you really enjoy getting out in the snow, then maybe having a greater degree of skiing is, is a great way to do that. So uh, cross-country skiing and ski-mo in particular have the biggest overlap with running. A lot of the top uh, European runners in particular are also top-level ski-mo races. So that's one thing is you don't always have to run the whole time. You can do other things, and particularly that is the most similar type of cross-training. Just try and keep in at least a little bit of running through the winter so that you still have the pounding that you won't get from the skiing side of things. Um, also maybe it's just, it, you, you don't mind treadmills in which case you can make a lot of use of those, but even if you do mind them and that's the only way you could run because of the conditions, then just finding a way to make that more interesting. Can you do say speed sessions on the treadmill? So because it, it, it changes, uh, paces, it kind of makes it a little bit more interesting. If you're only thinking two minutes ahead, it's a little bit simpler to then say, okay, I'm going to be on the treadmill, but it's not just a slow, steady run for an hour. It is a case of changing the paces up and down. And so there's always something stimulating as part of that. Another way to, to make use of a treadmill in wintertime is potentially to have some outdoor, some indoor to break up a long run. Uh, a, a favorite way that I've done this in the past with people is run to the gym, get on the treadmill, run back. So maybe you have half an hour outside of running, an hour on the treadmill, half an hour outside, and you've only had to do an hour of, of treadmill running, but you've got in a long run. You've been out there for two hours. And there's a load of variations you can do on that. You do need to make sure, though, that when you sweat on the treadmill, that either you change clothing or running with the backpack to get there so you can shower or something. It's okay if there's a small gap. So you're not going to be super sweaty. And then you go outside in really, really cold temperatures and um, get too cold. And, and, and that, that's certainly something to avoid. Another way you could do that is run to the gym, and then have the workout, then change clothes. So bring it with you in the backpack for that warm-up run outside and then walk home so that you're not having to worry about things as much. But you've just got to make sure you can carry enough clothes or get picked up at the gym in that situation. But it's just trying to find something that works for you. Um, it'll be a little bit different in terms of what things you find enjoyable. Um, 
And it's just trying to find a pattern that you can stick to regularly. So there's a routine to it and a consistency to it. And so that really goes to the next major point of this, which is you're trying to keep yourself fit through winter so that when it's more pleasant running conditions outside, you're in good shape. And it's not like you have to start from scratch once you hit April. So also be thinking about if you have an April race, if you have a June race, how fit do you want to be for that? You know, is it okay to just treat that as an early season thing and you'll use that to train through to other stuff? In which case, maybe you also think of, of the winter time as just a bit of an off season where you're doing a lot less training, but still trying to keep some consistency to it. Maybe running every other day without much purpose to it. That's okay to do for two or three months even, especially if, if that just makes things more enjoyable for you through the year. But do keep something in there. Otherwise, you're, you're taking a big step down in your fitness. But even doing a little bit will absolutely minimize the amount of, of fitness you lose and make it easier to then get back into things. But it's really about backfilling, thinking where you need to be, and also using that as motivation. So going back to one of the earlier questions, if you got into Western States and that's in June and you want to make sure that, that you are the absolute best for that race because you maybe never get a chance to do it again, then in wintertime, you want to make sure you're still doing something. So use that motivation when it's maybe a, a blizzard outside or you have to use the treadmill or you're doing something you don't enjoy as much to say, this is all about race day. It's several months away, but I'm going to put the work in now. It doesn't have to be as much work. You can be flexible that way. And then once the weather improves, you know, you'll be able to build up more and there'll be plenty of time. But use that as a motivator just to get out the door and also to, to not lose the fitness you have. That's another great motivator. If you're at a certain level of fitness, you don't want to see that atrophy for no good reason. So even just doing small amounts of exercise is very helpful with that. Uh, next question. Um, should I use a power meter as a trail runner? It's from Bob F. Um, I would say simply no. Um, going to a higher level, looking at all the different metrics you can look at, so power meter and heart rate monitors and all these different things, is even if we assume that they're working perfectly, and particularly for a heart rate monitor on the wrist, it probably doesn't give accurate data, um, you still want to be being able to judge things yourself through perceived effort. So this is even more important on the trails than it is on the roads, that perceived effort is one of the biggest skills you need for being able to pace well, because there's so many variables. You're going to be running uphill and downhill. You're going to be running on technical terrain and road sections. You're going to be running at night and day. You're going to have hot and cold. All these different things that make a massive difference. And you can't use any one metric to say, well, this is what I should do and I should speed up or slow down based on this. And particularly power meters are much less accurate if you're on uneven terrain because every footstep is a little bit different in terms of how much power you put through it. Maybe it's a little bit softer. Maybe it's a, a different angle. So the power meter data is not going to be as accurate anyway. But even if it were, I wouldn't recommend using that to say, okay, well, I should be at 210 watts in this distance of race. So I'm at 220 now, so slow down. I'm at 200, so speed up. It's just too much micromanaging. It makes it very, very difficult to get into a rhythm. So within a race environment, I would say absolutely not. I think that's a very bad idea. Within a training environment, it might help you to just dial in your effort level a little bit better. I think heart rate could work at least as well, particularly on the trails, it's probably more useful because it'll be a bit more accurate as long as it's a chest strap, but mainly just to, to spread out the hard and the easy stuff or to look at the data afterwards um, if you do, say, a long run or a speed session or a race, and then just see what you can learn from that. Did you go a bit too hard on that hill? And you can then see it that you were feeling worse later, and you can then correlate that in your head with, okay, this is what I did, and then it's how it felt and how things went afterwards, and that you can learn from that. And so maybe using these could help 
occasionally, especially at the earlier stages of getting into things. But afterwards, you're really trying to dial in your judgment of effort. And there's nothing that will do that as well, because these are all just one metric. So power is your output. But how does that change if you're at high altitude versus at sea level? All you know is how much force you're putting through, not how much your body's capable of doing. And same with heart rate. How is that going to vary if you just had some caffeine because uh, you just had a gel um, compared to right before having the gel? There's too many things that you just can't possibly judge that mean that it will vary when it shouldn't or when your effort level is not necessarily varying at the same time. And you're not going to know what's sustainable anyway. So the only way you can get that is through the experience of doing races, of doing lots of different types of varied run, different types of terrain, different types of distance. And that is probably the single biggest skill you need to get as a runner. So if you were to get overly reliant on something like a power meter, then you're losing that skill and you're, or you're never gaining it in the first place. And then the other thing as well is if you're in a race and the power meter breaks or your battery dies on your watch, then how do you do things if you were relying on that completely? So not only is that going to make it very difficult for you to make the right choices, it's also going to feel mentally debilitating to know that the thing, that crutch that you had there is no longer there. While your brain can factor in all the different things, the temperature, how tired you are, energy levels, uh, how sore your muscles are, how you've felt on different runs in the past and different races. It can bring all of that together in a holistic way for, for not missing anything out. While any one of these uh, metrics that you could get through a power meter or a heart rate monitor or anything else is just looking at one thing. Um, and it's not going to be as accurate and incorporate everything that you need to be considering. So it could maybe help you to help dial in that effort at the early stages, just to spread out easy and hard or to learn a little bit from uh, from how things actually went looking at the data afterwards. Again, assuming the data is accurate and that you've got a, a good device that's working well and not a risk-based heart rate monitor in particular. But otherwise, I would say it's it's fairly useless for a trail runner. Probably more useful for a roadrunner, but even still, all the things I just mentioned still apply. There are just fewer variables. The races don't tend to be night and day. They don't tend to have as much variability in terms of terrain or gradient. But it's still the same idea that you're going to judge that better by using your brain than you will through any kind of external um, measurement of that. Uh, next question. A lot of top ultra runners seem to be converts to some form of the keto diet or low carb, high fat. Is there something different about really long distances that makes this feasible? And that's from Joe F. Um, simply put, I'd say there is something a little bit different, which is that your energy burn is going to be lower because you're going slower. It's going to be a higher proportion of fat that you're burning. So you don't need to use as much carbs, but you still are using carbs. So there's nothing really to suggest out there that the people who are keto athletes aren't just... Um, for them, maybe it works better than the average person, but it's not necessarily that that's the secret to their success because you do need to use carbs. And it's essential that even for the keto athletes out there who do very well, they still have to then train themselves up to be able to take carbs on if they want to be able to perform well on race day. So even if their normal diet and their normal training doesn't include it, they're still forcing themselves to get used to it. Otherwise, it'll just make them puke if they have something like a gel on race day. So it's it takes a lot of time, firstly, to try and adapt your body to... Uh, uh, to ketosis and usually months of pretty poor training in the meantime. The main benefit that they would uh, tell you is that you don't need to take on as much food. So in an ultra, if you can get away with less food, that in theory would be beneficial. But I would argue it's much better just to train up your stomach because that's also doable. And the more that you can take in in terms of calories during a race, the better that'll be for you. So if you're really struggling and there's a million other things that are stopping you and maybe there's... Um, 
something specific about your genetics that mean um, that carbs in particular are harder to digest, then maybe there's a little bit more of a benefit. But even still, you're going to be at a suboptimal level if you're if you're focusing on that and you're not taking in as many carbs. The simplest way of looking at this is if you look at the Olympics for the marathon, if there were one diet that were clearly the best, then all of them would have to have it. If you want to be in the top 1%, which we say that's the that's more than that even for the Olympics, then um, you they'd all have to do it. If there's something else that makes a difference of 2%, then no one could be at that top level without doing it. Yet we see vegans, we see vegetarians, we see um, meat eaters, we see uh, everything. We don't actually really see keto people, in fairness, at the Olympics um, for, for doing uh, that. But we do see more of the, the very different diets that are out there that are still including carbohydrates. And that's because carbohydrates is an essential fuel. If you uh, had a race car and you didn't put in the best uh, racing car, jet fuel type stuff into it, uh, high octane fuel, then it's not going to run as well as the competitors. So it could still be very good and it could still probably go slowly around the track and that's kind of the the question here i suppose is is it low enough intensity for an ultra that you can get away with that uh, or that it's better i would say you can maybe get away with a little bit more but you're still probably um or you still are limiting your maximum performance because you still do need to be able to use uh, carbs and it's better to train your stomach up to be able to take them on than it is to try and do without them when they are an essential part of what's needed. So it doesn't mean that some people can't have success with it, but it's certainly not a universal rule. There's nothing to suggest from research or the experiences you see from top level runners that it is the best option. And so I definitely wouldn't recommend that as being something for people to try you'd definitely want to spend a long time instead trying to try different foods, see what you can you can train your stomach to be able to take on and see which brands and, and flavors work for you better and making sure that your food has more variety to it in a long ultra. So having um, sweeter stuff, more savory stuff, more real food, just trying to have a variety of things. The more you use it in training, the better your stomach gets adapted to that as well. It does get better at digesting it. So that's the better option, I would argue. But there is something a little bit different, definitely, about really long races that you can maybe get away with uh, a little bit more of a kind of keto diet, but it is more of a getting away with it rather than it being optimal. Uh, and also, th there's no one diet that's perfect for everyone. Everyone's a little bit different. So what works for me is not exactly what works for you. And it's a, largely a trial and error thing to see what works best. Uh, next question. Do you think using super shoes is cheating? That's from Stephen S. So we talked about this um, a, f a few episodes ago. Um, I, I'm kind of on the fence. Like I, I do use super shoes. I have the, the Nike uh, Next Percents and I've used those in races because frankly, they feel good and they do seem to be a little bit faster. And also if they can reduce the amount of muscle soreness, um, then you can maybe recover a little bit quicker as well. So all of that is useful. And I would argue it's more like cyclists where <clears throat> the technology is changing the whole time and they're getting lighter bikes and, and spending more money on them and that kind of thing. As long as everyone has access to them, that, that would be the key thing for me. Uh, and so I think it's not so much cheating. There's maybe just an unfair advantage if certain runners who are not with the same brands have inferior issues. Because And the other side of it that uh, that we talked about in that podcast is the idea that the amount you adapt to it, the amount that it helps you will be different. So 
<clears throat> this isn't that dissimilar to the idea of doping, that maybe Lance Armstrong wasn't the best cyclist and they were all doping. Maybe he was the one who adapted to the drugs better than the others. Maybe he got a 5% benefit and they got a 3% benefit. And that's what put him at the top of the pile. So the same thing would be with the shoes, that if one person gets a 4% increase in how fast they can go, another person gets a 2% increase, then you're changing around the podium, not based on who's the best runner, but on who's the best adapter or gets the most benefit from the shoes. So that would be the, the biggest issue I would have. I think outside of elite racing, I see no problem in them. They're just new technology. If they allow older runners or uh, people to get PRs when they wouldn't otherwise, that's fun. Yeah, I, I don't see anything down uh, wrong about that. But I would say that I think of it as two different areas. There's the records before super shoes and there's the records afterwards. This also applies to uh, the longer distance stuff. So the uh, the 100 mile world records broken just a couple of weeks ago before I recorded this. It's now under 11 hours, which is an insanely fast time, 6.30 per mile. Um, and the previous or the next fastest runner um, is about half an hour slower than that. So that's a significant difference. But the previous record was with normal shoes. Uh, I, I know exactly which shoes it was, a pair of Ultras. Uh, and uh, the new record is done with the, the Nike Next Percents. So the amount of difference there is difficult to know. What was that half hour, in fact, all down to the shoes? It could be. It could be more than half an hour. So it's difficult to compare like for like. I mean, does it, not to take away, it's an insanely amazing performance uh, and it's right up there with the best ever. But um, it is difficult to compare. So I, I think of there being the records in running pretty much up to 2016 uh, and you can go back to the 70s and 60s and make them comparable. And then, well, forever almost, because you know the shoe technology hasn't increased to the same degree apart from right now where it has really had a step change. And then the post-2016. So when we look at marathon records, when we look at national records, when we look at um, road-related stuff in general, and track as well, all of these are being taken down, often by big chunks. And it's difficult to know how much of that is the shoes. Or even at the last Olympics, they said the track was maybe worth a small amount as well. So track records that were going down, maybe half a percent of that was the track, another 1% was the shoes, and they're only 1% ahead of the record. So it would have liked for like been slower, but it's impossible to compare uh, unless you had that same person doing a load of tests in the lab with older shoes and newer shoes. So I don't think it's cheating. I think it's just a natural part of, of the evolution of uh, technology, but I would like to see there being maybe rules that make it a bit fairer, or if there's uh, technology such as the foam with that Nike has, I believe, some degree of, of rights over, that that is made available to others, at least for elite level competition. But otherwise, I think who doesn't want to run a bit quicker? I think that's you know a motivating thing for most runners and therefore a positive thing. And the last question I have today is, uh, you've run a lot of road races around the world. So what are your top three road marathons? So this is a little bit more of a fun one to end on. This is from Chris N. Um, I have, I've done probably about 50 different road marathons around the world. I think I've done 120 races that are marathons, but quite a few of those multiple times, especially my favorites. But I would say if you're looking at a road marathon globally and you're not restricted on where you can go, um, the fastest courses are going to be the ones you've heard of. I think the fastest course is probably Berlin. Uh, I've done that three times. It's marginally quicker, I would say, than London. And part of that is not just the gradients on the course, but also the typical weather. So you've got much more chance of it being ideal conditions. But I think Berlin's probably the quickest legal race course I've done. Uh, of, of ones that are not 
legal and, and would count uh, for records. The quickest ones are definitely the downhill ones. So I, I've done a, a downhill one outside Vegas, the Mount Charleston race that I would say is one of my favorites, but it's 5,200 feet of downhill. So absolutely destroys your quads. Uh, very beautiful as well, because you're starting up on, on Mount Charleston and, and you get mountain views and then you come into Northwest uh, Vegas. Um, but that was just so fast. That was fun as well. So that would be one of my favorites, but it was not one that would count for a legal record. Uh, but that did take 11 minutes off my best time. Um, and, uh, and I did it again last year, um, or just over a year ago and, and was only a few seconds off that best as well. So I, I love races that are scenic and fast. And so I would say for scenery, Lake Tahoe, there's multiple marathons around there. There's like a Tahoe triple. So any one of those would be good, but the final day is the most scenic. It goes along the Southern parts uh, and through, uh, was it Emerald Bay, I believe it's called, and Inspiration Point. So that's a beautiful, beautiful race. Not fast, though, because it's uh, the lake level is 6,000 feet and it goes up to 7,000 feet or so. So it's a, it's a tough race, um, but absolutely amazing to do. Uh, in terms of stuff that kind of gets a little bit of both, where it's really scenic and fun and exciting as well as fast, uh, I'm a big fan of Boston. Done that one seven times. Um, there's something special about that, no doubt, because everyone who's there really cares about the fact that they're there. It's not just another race. Also, the crowds are much more knowledgeable and the town's really behind it or the city's behind it. So Boston is a good combination of being a fast-ish race as well as being an amazing experience. Um, the downhill marathons that run Revel series, I think, are, are fantastic because there's something really fun about going very, very fast. And then... Um, in terms of a couple of other ones I'd mentioned, I would say Rome and Paris are two of my favorites as well. So they're amazing cities to run around. Rome in particular, you get a load of uh, long straights where you're just heading right towards a world famous thing, like you're running a mile in a straight line towards the Vatican. You're running uh, straight towards the Colosseum. And I think it, ble- I think it still starts and finishes at the Colosseum. But it just feels like a, an amazing history tour, as well as being a pretty fast course. Um, but it does have some cobbles that makes it a little bit more co- um, more complicated there. But so that's a few of the ones. I, I probably said more than three there. But uh, if you want the fastest courses in the world, I think that's probably still London and uh, Berlin, which is why they tend to get the records. And they're great races as well. Um, I lived in London for a long time and uh, uh, it didn't feel quite as special just because the fact that I ran around most of the course most days. Uh, and so it's just my st- normal run, but a little bit quicker. But they're, they're definitely two of the quickest. And then I think Lake Tahoe is a spectacular one. Um, to be honest, anything that's on trails obviously would be uh, even more beautiful. But if we're talking about road races, then Tahoe is great. And those downhill uh, run revel ones that are typically next to big cities where there's a mountain and there's a like a ski area and you run down from the ski area. And uh, they're very, very fun. Uh, and like I said, massive PRs are possible. But again, like with the super shoes, you think of your pre-super shoe and post-super shoe PRs. Same kind of thing with uh, the downhill. I have my normal legal um pr and i have my downhill pr and i think of them as two separate things so thank you for all of that 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 was the last question and uh, i'll just uh, round things off now thanks for listening in through the last two years and i hope you've enjoyed the show as mentioned this is the last one but you can contact me ian sharman at shamanultra.com or via social media at, at shamanian if you're interested in coaching with uh, anyone in my team And you can check out podiumrun.com for articles for runners of all levels. Goodbye.